Good morning, church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Westview. Just a joy to be able to gather with you uh, this morning. This is it, church. We are bringing this baby in for a landing. This morning is our final sermon in our series where we have been looking at this idea of leadership in these liminal spaces, this experience we are in as a church family, this in-between season. Uh, and it's just a joy to be able to be here with you. Uh, as we gather in our homes, in our living rooms, in your kitchen, wherever it is uh, that you are watching this this morning. It's just, I'm looking forward uh, to wrapping things up this morning. As we begin, church, why don't we pray? Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that in this season we find ourselves in, this liminal space, this in-between times, we continue to trust in you as our rock our hope, our redeemer. So I pray as we dive in, as we look at your word, that you just speak to us, challenge us, inspire us, equip us for what you are continuing to call us as your church to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as we get going here this morning, I want to do a little bit of a recap. I want to look back upon these last few weeks and, uh, and just kind of highlight a few things as we dive into this last bit of our sermon this morning. The first week, if you remember a few weeks back, we looked at this idea of change and this seeming incongruency between what we experience in our culture and what we know to be true in the scriptures. Because culturally, we see change as something that's to be uh, expected, essentially embraced. It's, it's normal. It's just a part of the everyday rhythm that we find ourselves in. If you remember, we talked about how Greek philosopher Heraclitus of, of Ephesus uh, declared this comment, panta re, and put into a more common language, it was the only constant is change. This idea that it's always, life is always going to be about change. And yet, when we look at the scriptures, we looked at three key scriptures. If you remember them, uh, let me highlight them again for us this morning as we get going. Malachi 3.6a, I the Lord do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Again, reminding us of who our God is, his character, his nature, that he is unchanging, and that we can trust in him when everything around us seems to be changing. In the second week, we took a closer look at the transition of leadership between Moses and Joshua, that this was a story of, of courage, of, of strength. These two key attributes that I feel are essential for us to navigate change in any form of leadership that we find ourselves in. That these are really two key characteristics that we all ought to have as followers of Jesus, strength and courage. And I think this, this story serves as a really helpful reminder for us, especially as we prepare young leaders and as we prepare them for the role that we see God calling them into, to remind them to have courage, to be strong, and for that to come from the Lord. In the third week, uh, Rob Ogilvie, who is our executive minister for our denomination, came and gave such a great message, a, a timely reminder for us of what it looks like sometimes when things don't go well. Now, again, I'd never wish those, see, uh, those experiences, those seasons of transition when things go sideways on anybody, but 
I love what Rob said because in his message to us, he reminded us that yes, things will happen. Stuff will go sideways. But what is critical for us to remember in those moments is what, or probably better phrased, who we keep our eyes on. Rob's reminder to us was that we need to remain focused on Jesus. Not looking to the left, to the right, not getting distracted by the circumstances that we're experiencing, but looking at Jesus. And I'm so thankful he came and shared that lesson with us. Week four, so last week, we looked at the leadership of, of Paul and his young protege, Timothy. Again, this model of mentoring that I think is so essential for us as the church, but really for all of us, that I think it's such an essential quality that we should emulate, that we should desire to see a part of our lives as followers of Jesus and as leaders in whatever arena we find ourselves leading in. Maybe you remember 2 Timothy 2.2. Let me read it for us. It'll be on the screen. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. You see, this call that Paul entrusted to Timothy is really a call that we're all entrusted with, that we are called to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who yeah, make disciples. Let that sink in for a moment this morning, or whenever it is that you're watching this message, that we are called to make disciples, to replicate Christ in us, in them. So are we on board with that mission, church? Are we, are we with that calling? Do we understand what is asked of us that was asked of Timothy? Or are we still, to some degree, consumed with our own selfish needs, our own selfish desires? Because there is always that struggle, that, that war within us to live for ourselves rather than living for what God is asking of us, even in these uncertain times that we find ourselves in. I wanted us to watch that video that we saw at the beginning of this morning's service because I really feel like it was a timely reminder for us of what is important, what we ought to cling to, or, or really who we all need to find our hope in, what is truly important in this season that we have endured and labored through for months and months now. And that's what brings me to my first point this morning as we get going here. What's the most important? I shared a quote last week from a leadership guru. His name is Stephen Covey, if you've read any of his things. And, and one of his most famous quotes, I want to reiterate it again this morning, is this. Is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You see, Covey's thesis in this is focused on keeping what is truly essential to be at the forefront of everything that we do, and that anything outside of, of that main thing for Covey, but I think also for us, is just that. It's outside. It's lesser than. It's not what is truly important. And Covey wants to remind us that our goal is to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, oddly enough, the Apostle Paul reminds the church in Corinth of this similar idea of what is to them to be truly essential, what is to be the main thing. 
In Paul's words, he says it's of the first importance. Let me read in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The main thing that not just us as pastors are entrusted with, but, but all of us, is to keep that main thing. And what is it? Well, that's the gospel. So what's the gospel? Well, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is the word for good news. It's not just something for us to, to contemplate on. It's not just something for us to consider. It's not something that just simply informs our decisions. It's not something that we just talk about in church. It's good news. And it's the good news that we make known. Why? Well, because this gospel has impacted my life as likely as it has impacted your life. And because of how it has impacted our lives, we then ask, well, then what do we do with it? How do we live this out? How do we make this known? It's the message that reminds us that, like it says in verse 3 of our text, we read that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. While not a popular concept, let alone a popular really word, it seems these days each of us has sinned. We have chosen to rebel. We've chosen to do what we deem to be right in our own eyes instead of following what Jesus says. I mean, this began way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and it continues to this day. You see, by our sin, we have turned from the life that God intended for us to live, and we've driven this kind of this wedge in between us and God. We are this fallen people. We, we need to be rescued. What you and I need is a Redeemer. Someone who could bring us back into this right relationship with God, to bring us back to, to a place where it would have been all along if it weren't for the sins of Adam and Eve. And so God sent his son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we could never live and died the death that we should have died as that penalty, as that ransom payment for sin in order for us to be brought back into, first and foremost, that right relationship with God, but also so that our lives would reflect Jesus and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love to our workplaces, to our family, to our neighbors and our neighborhood. That we would see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is not simply just a transactional experience. I, I say this a lot, it seems like, church, but maybe it's just because I'm passionate about it. It's this idea, again, that for many of us, we've seen Jesus as our Savior, this, this one who came to bring forgiveness for sin. But the challenge sometimes, again, is for us to see Jesus as Lord, as King, as the one who truly is good and the one who truly is in charge. That we don't see ourselves as Lord, as King, as the one in charge, but that belongs, that right, 
That is the role of Christ. And so that brings us to our next point this morning, our second point. What are we called to do? Well, what you and I are called to do, church, is simple. We're called to run the race. You see, in a matter of days, I'm going to pass the baton on to Gary as our next lead pastor. This baton was entrusted to me for, well, the better part of this month, and it was a role I was asked to fulfill. This was the race I was asked to run, and one that I was glad and happy to be able to do. But you see, church, each one of us is called to run the race. It's an illustration that the the Bible often uses to describe our lives. I mean, Forrest Gump said life was like a box of chocolates, and and I agree, that sounds a lot tastier, and and I've kind of lived that mantra, I think, a little bit too much this last COVID year. But you see, the scriptures, and especially the Apostle Paul, love to use this illustration that we as Christians are called to run a race. It serves as such a great visual reminder of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Perhaps a bit of context, something that helps us to understand this verse here, is that Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Corinth. And Corinth is a a port city, but 100 kilometers east of Athens. We know that Paul spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth. And and in Corinth, something took place there that was known as the Ithmian Games. And these athletic games were held every two years in the city of of Corinth. And so this idea of running a race was very familiar to this audience that he is writing to. I mean, these games were a part of something even greater, the Panhellenic Games, which included in Olympia what we now know as the modern Olympic Games. What we might not be aware of, though, as we read this scripture, as we understand what Paul is saying here to the church in Corinth, is these athletic games had quite a bit tied into kind of Greek mythology and and pagan idolatry. But I don't think what Paul is doing is is kind of giving endorsement to this idolatry and pagan ritual that was attached to these games. What I think Paul is doing is what Paul does well. Paul's really good at being able to look at culture and to use the images and experiences of his day, of wherever he's at, And he's able to really kind of translate that into a gospel presentation. He's able to use what's going on around him to be able to share about Jesus with others. One of the best examples of this is in Acts 17, where Paul is walking through Athens and he's sharing about this tomb to an unknown God. Let's read that beginning in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breathes and everything else. You see, Paul used the world around him. He used the culture that he found himself in as a way of pointing people to Jesus. So in this case, Paul references two of the largest, most well-known sporting events in his time because his audience would have been aware of that. It would have resonated with them. It would have made sense to them. And so much like in the Greek Olympic Games, each race has a prize. There's this goal for which these athletes enter and compete to win. There's a crown. And actually, some translations, such as the ESV, they'll use this word, the wreath, because what contestants received when they, when they won the race was a crown of wreaths. This was the symbol of victory, that what they had sought had been accomplished. The goal had been reached. But this encouragement by Paul to his audience to run the race also came with a warning. In his letter to the believers in Galatia, he writes this. You were running a race, a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Just like anyone running a race, there are times if you've ever watched the Olympics or any sort of track and field, there are times when you'll watch a runner lose sight of the lines. They'll, they'll lose sight of the track, of the direction that they're going in, and they'll begin to veer to the left or to the right into the lane of another runner. You see, they get distracted. They lose sight of the course, and that's when disaster strikes. Not just for them, but for the, the runner that they interfere themselves with. And, and Paul again draws on this athletic imagery to admonish the Galatians, to help them recognize that someone just cut them off. This is the modern day equivalent of driving on Deerfoot and someone swerves into your lane. However you react, I don't want to know. But this serves as a warning for all of us. That as we follow Christ, there can be these catastrophic experiences that cause us to veer off track. For a runner to lose a race, it's not the end of the world. I mean, even if it feels like that in the moment. For Paul, his concern for his ear hearers is not just to, to not lose track of where they are, but his greatest concern in this conversation, in this letter, his concern is that they don't fall away from the faith that they held onto so tightly, that he himself helped them to understand and to know and to believe in. For Paul, this, this would be the greatest tragedy. And it's no different, I think, church, for any of us. When we see those whom we love, whom we've mentored, whom we've poured our lives into, when we watch them turn away from Jesus. I mean, it breaks our heart. It breaks the heart of God. It's not easy. Yet in the midst of this, I think there's one final promise that we need to remember, that we need to hold on to. And that's the most important reminder. In his words to the Apostle Peter, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this, and they tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Church, two things for us that we need to remember as we begin to wrap things up this morning. Jesus builds his church. I mean, this doesn't mean that we just mail it in from this point out. No, don't hear me when I say this, but, but it needs to remind us that Jesus is the one with all the power and with all the capacity to build his church. That he is alive and at work in this world in ways in which we cannot fathom. And it's a reminder that the future of Christianity does not rest solely on my shoulders, on your shoulders. It's that Jesus will build his church. And we need to take heart in that church, to hold fast to that promise. That even in the chaos of the season that we have found ourselves in, the church is growing. That people are coming to know Jesus as Savior. The gospel is being proclaimed. And the second thing I want us to remember, church, as we wrap this up, is that we need to still run the race. You see, what you and I are called to, we're called to run. We're called to run the race. What does that mean? What means we need to preach and we need to live out the gospel. But it, it is this both and of word and deed. For us, church, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. We're called not to give up. This has been a hard season. This has been a season of, of grief and loss. Even for us as a church, as we mourn the loss of, of having to say goodbye to two pastors who served us so faithfully, that we loved so dearly. But we're called to run. We're called to keep the main thing the main thing because it's not about me, it's not about them, it's not about us, it's about him. We're called not to give up, church. We're called to make Jesus big, church, in the everyday stuff of life, church. School, home, wherever. Our work. Most of us work from home these days, it feels like, but wherever it is, We need to make Jesus big. So today we come to this point in the race where I'm personally excited to be able to hand off this baton. I mean, in our case, it's a microphone, but it's a fitting illustrative piece to Gary as he begins to run this next leg of the race as our lead pastor here at Westview. We are simultaneously spectators and participants in this race. We are watching this happen, but we are participating in it as well. We're here to cheer one another on. We're here to, to spur each other on to, to finish well, to claim that prize that the runners race for. And what I think that prize is, albeit yes, it's eternal life in heaven, but it's maybe this as well, that when we get to the end of this race, when all is said and done, we hear the words of Jesus saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's why we run.
that's the race that we're called to, church. And it might just be for a season. Your part in that four by 100 relay may just be one quarter of it, but yet you're called to one. And there will be moments in our lives where we hand that baton off to the next leader, to the next person. And we don't mail it in. We don't give up at that point, church. We cheer them on. We applaud their successes. And we recognize that we are all in this together. We're the body. We're the church. And we're called to the same mission, to make disciples, to love God, to love others. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for today, for this word from your word, that it would challenge us and equip us and inspire us to run the race that you called us to. Help us to cheer one another on. Help us to know when it's our turn to hand over the baton. But help us to never grow weary, to never grow faint, so that when all is said and done, we will hear you say to us, Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's in your powerful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.